Welcome to the Building Science Podcast. 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 Bringing the human factor to architecture and design. Brought to you by Positive Energy in Austin, Texas. Greetings, building science enthusiasts, and welcome back to the Building Science Podcast. We have a great episode in store for you, but I do want to let you know that we had some issues with our recording technology and unfortunately didn't get quite the high quality audio that we care to. So what you're hearing uh, in this podcast is actually the audio from Zoom, and it's the standard digital artifacts that you sometimes hear on Zoom calls, and I'm sure we're all very familiar with those now. So a thousand pardons in advance, but it's a great episode and really hope you enjoy it. Okay, hello and welcome back, everybody. Welcome back to the Building Science Podcast. I'm Christoph Rowan here as always with my sidekick, Miguel. Say hello, Miguel. Happy 2021, everybody. We made it. Oh my goodness, yes. It, it is 2021 and we are going to resist the... Uh, gravitational pull to make commentary about the world we're living in, partly because we have some amazing guests and an amazing topic or an important topic to talk about. Today, we're going to be talking about the importance of keeping a house dry, but not just the importance. We're going to talk about how to do it and um, why. So I have with me, I have the great good pleasure of introducing two colleagues and friends, Nikki Kruger and David Trelevin. They're both with Thermostore. And um, Thermostore is a, a product manufacturer that is not all that simple to describe. So I'm going to let one of you have that challenge. Could you please give us a brief introduction to Thermostore? Sure, I'll take that one. Uh, so Thermostore is headquartered in Madison, Wisconsin, and we manufacture several different brands of indoor air quality equipment. Um, not only do we manufacture them, but we're also the innovators of several technologies that have been applied to dehumidification. So Ultra Air, we invented the whole house ventilating dehumidifiers uh, back in the mid 90s. Mm. We have the Santa Fe brand, which is the freestanding free dehumidifiers for crawl spaces and basements and um, the innovators of the first horizontal dehumidifiers for that crawl space application. Right. Quest is our uh, commercial line of de dehumidifiers. And then we have Phoenix, which is a full line of restoration equipment. Very well said. Okay, so what about applications? Where are these things used? I, I mean, we know Ultra Air. And by the way, we did a podcast with Ken Gehring, the founder of Thermostore. So if you haven't heard that, listeners, definitely cue that up. So what kind of uh, applications are these things going into? So we have everything from residential and then commercial, which could be military bases, multifamily housing, um, light, light commercial applications like uh, maybe dog kennels. Mm. I mean, anything that potentially could be using a lot of ventilation and need extra dehumidification but also where they're generating maybe more moisture than uh, an AC system is designed to handle. And then our restoration line would be, um, you know, when there's a water loss, whether that's pipes freezing in the winter time or hurricanes. And with that line comes a full line of HEPA, um, air scrubbers, all kinds of equipment that would be used in the restoration industry. Wow. Yeah, there's a lot of really good products here, a lot of applications. 
So uh, you mentioned that you guys are the innovators. Uh, is that like a subset? I, I believe David is in that innovator group. Is that right? Yeah. So, I mean, originally you had Ken, right? I mean, mm -hmm. Ken led the innovation for a long time. Right. Um, and then I had the great opportunity of working with David when he was at Advanced Energy. Mm -hmm. And David and I worked on a lot of projects together, including our uh, crawl space encapsulation class when he was with Advanced Energy. Yeah. Um, and, you know, really uh, developed a great relationship with David and really admired his technical expertise and how he applied uh, a lot of the same theories for dehumidification. So we worked together to be able to, to bring him to Thermostore. Mwahaha. Yeah. <laughs> And okay. now he's heading up our innovation team. Oh, I didn't know that. Congratulations, David. Well, yeah. yeah. Uh, not really. <laughs> well, well, I think so, but go ahead. <laughs> so actually, um, David, since you're on mic now, could you introduce yourself briefly and your background, um, which we now know includes advanced energy? Yeah, so I'm David Trelevin. Uh, I'm the technical director of innovation, and I've been with Thermostore for about three years now. And before that, I was uh, doing building science consulting and utility consulting at Advanced Energy. And I don't know if you remember this, Christoph, but we actually met at my presentation at Passive House talking about low load houses and moisture issues. Yep, I do remember that. Yeah, it was, uh, it was a good mutual connection right off the bat. Yeah, uh, exactly. And uh, John Tooley is kind of one of my personal heroes. So uh, did you get to work with him pretty closely or is he pretty insulated from you? Yeah, John was definitely one of my mentors at Advanced Energy. Uh, he was there almost the entire time I was there and then he retired a year before I left. Ah, so he's retired now. Good for him. Okay, so we're going to open up this topic now. We're going to open up the technical topic. Oh, it just occurs to me. I didn't. Uh, Nikki, could you introduce yourself? Sure. So I am the building science and business development manager for Thermostore. Um, my background, um, I've been in indoor air quality for 20 years, which is crazy to even <laughs> think, uh, and 12 of that being at Thermostore. Wow, that's great. That's great. I'm wondering, before we actually open the topic up, like talk about why we want to keep things dry in indoor environments, I've observed like a general trend from like energy, everything has to be about energy efficiency to actually know we should promote human thriving, we should be paying attention to health and well being. I imagine that helped you but in the earlier days of the building science world when everyone you know the metric was energy. Were you getting um, more of a frosty reception. I, I think at first, if, if you looked at it on paper, absolutely. But it's, you know, we've kind of seen that no deep, good deed goes unpunished, right? So yeah. as soon as we start chasing that last BTU, we realize that potentially we're creating other problems by doing that. We have to think about the comfort and health of the people in the building, and we can't just be worried about the energy. Um, you know, one of Joe Steinberg's great uh, lines that I love is you can't uh, energy conserve your way to dry. Yep, yeah, well it's said. I remember doing a REM rate modeling uh, several years back and um, you know, I, I knew dehumidifiers were absolutely critical in my market here in central Texas, but every time I'd put one into REM rate, it was an auxiliary load and the Hertz score would go up. There's no way around it. Uh, so the builders wouldn't like it, you know, 
code, even if we had some code people here that I had to try to talk with. And yeah, it's, so I'm glad I'm really, we're all lucky that we're being more sensible about, okay, what is this thing for? Right, we're putting people in here and we need to recognize that. Well, and I think if we look at, um, and I think this came from a presentation that I worked with Kimberly Llewellyn on at ACA several years ago. Um, you and I were supposed to do that, that one. I in, do remember uh, that one. Yep, yeah, yep. Yeah. And, you know, it was in the presentation was, you know, how much energy you're using for air conditioning to remove water versus how much energy you're using for a dehumidifier. And I think it was like, three times the amount of dehumidification you get for the same amount of energy if you use a dehumidifier versus an air conditioner. Yep, yeah. Kimberly so, and I did, did some math and three to five was the range. Yeah. How many pints per BTU? Yeah, so you get a lot more of that. And, and sometimes we have to go back to that to really make people understand what is the ultimate goal and how are we gonna achieve that? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So yeah, let's let's open up that. So briefly, I, I think a lot of the listeners might have already heard it, but could you remind, especially for first-time listeners or first time to this topic, why do we want to spend extra energy to keep indoor environments dry? So there are really four main reasons that we need to focus on dehumidification. First of all, moisture is the number one detriment to, to any building, whether that's bulk or if that that uh, building keeps just absorbing moisture. So we've got structure of the building. Um, all the contents in that building are going to be absorbing moisture. So we have construction, potentially moisture. Mm -hmm. We've got moisture loading of not only the building, but then also all the materials inside. Yeah. Uh, comfort issues. We really need to keep it within a certain range, whether that's in the winter time or in the humid, warm times of the year. Um, and then health, of course, health is the top of everybody's um, uh, mind right now is, yeah. is, you know, how do I create the space that I can control my home? How do I control the indoor air quality? What can I do? And so those are really the four main reasons that we have to look at dehumidification, whether that's in the entire home, or maybe we look at the crawl space or basement because if we're getting a lot of moisture down there, that's where we probably need to start. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I can remember, um, speaking of health, when we were first hit with the pandemic and we didn't know how this SARS-CoV-2 virion would react to moisture, I was like, oh my gosh, maybe DHU is gonna be a huge uh, asset. Um, and it turns out, you know, 40 to 60 is kind of the optimal range for COVID, uh, for this encapsulated type virus at least. Which well, is already saw, in our band. Mm -hmm. Please. We saw, I mean, I saw recommendations up to 70%. Yeah. Um, because they were thinking that, you know, it would drop quicker, right? So if there were the droplets, then they wouldn't spread as much. And, you know, it's this whole, we always have to be careful with relative humidity, right? Yes. Because it's relative to a temperature. Right. And uh, if, if we just start throwing things out there, we can create, again, a lot more problems. If we say you need more ventilation, all of a sudden, everybody's adding a, a ton of ventilation with fans in their house without the understanding of what, you know, the no good deed goes unpunished. Yep. Yeah, exactly. So it's always a balance. It's always, a, it depends. But generally, I think that, you know, the, well, actually, what, what would you recommend as far as COVID aside, what range of relative humidities inside? 
I think typically um, we recommend 55, but I know a lot of times in the in the manual J calculations, the, the goal is 50, right? When you're designing your air conditioning system. Yeah. Um, so I, I would probably say that when it says 55 on the controller, that's in one location. And the farther you get away, potentially it could be drier or wetter. Um, so to me, 50 was pro is probably a really good goal for health because we know once you get below 55 that dust mites can't sur survive. And dust mites are usually found in bedrooms yeah. more than anywhere else. So we really got to make sure that, you know, the, the farther we get away from that control, we might have some remote sensors to understand what's going on in those other areas of the home. I think I've heard that the EPA's Indoor Air Plus now is, is getting more focus on humidity. So the Indoor Air Plus program typically has always recommended uh, dedicated supplemental dehumidification in certain climate zones. Um, but they really never went into specifying, it just said dehumidif dehumidification. So of course that could be a dehumidifier or it could be using an AC system which has the capabilities of dehumidification. They've taken it a little bit further um, in their proposed new update to actually say a ventilating or whole home dehumidifier instead of just a dehumidifier. And then also they've expanded uh, the climate zones a little bit as well up to climate zone four now, because we know our weather's changing. Um, dew points that used to have only been thought of in Louisiana or Florida are actually lasting, you know, happening in, uh, the farther we go up uh, in the United States, you know, on the East Coast and the Midwest, and then lasting longer than they used to, which is really good. And they're also recommending monitoring as part of Yay. this in their building as well, not just the single family, but multifamily, which is extremely important. Um, a lot of times we get questions, well, if if I put a dehumidifier in this part of my house, should I put one, you know, maybe that does the whole house or should I just do the crawl space? Well, put one in the crawl space, take care of any issues that are causing moisture in that crawl space to make sure that we're not just, you know, slapping one down there and thinking that it's going to take care of it. But we got to think about the envelope as well, but then monitor the rest of the home to see if maybe you know, if 50% of the air that's coming from the crawl space is going into the rest of your home, that might help the rest of your home. Yeah, absolutely. So, but monitoring, I think is so important. Yeah, I think that's, well, getting back to the EPA and Indoor Air Plus, the, the reality is that there's many of us that sometimes feel these programs are very slow and cumbersome and they need to evolve faster. But the fact is that they're trying to be prudent and very fact-based and, and make um, gradual and incremental steps forward to keep the, the mainstream society and the industries involved coming with them. So well, and I, it's, and it's a really good, yeah, it's, it's a really good program um, that, you know, I, I think the where we struggle a little bit within some of these recommendations is using the, the heating and cooling equipment to, uh, regulate to 60% RH, which can be very challenging to do that in certain climate zones, because that means we're, we're, you know, overcooling to try to get to an RH, which, you know, depending on where the ductwork's located, how well everything's insulated, we could be 
creating more more issues. Um, so there's any we can set it up that way, but it doesn't mean anybody who's living in that home or apartment is actually going to run the system to actually achieve that. Oh, absolutely. This this is a huge topic. Maybe maybe slightly out of sequence here, but I'm going to ask you now, David, and we can come back and figure this out. Could you do you have any general comments on this uh, perceived controversy between dedicated dehumidification versus using your central cooling system with special controls to accomplish dehumidification? Yeah, um, I mean, my, my thought would be that ACs can do a great job controlling moisture if there's also a sensible load uh, at the same time. Um, so, you know, in the summers, if we size our equipment appropriately and we have good controls that are able to, you know, maintain the coil temperature lower to remove more moisture, um, you know, we can have about one third of that cooling capacity can be delatent and two thirds can be desensible. The problem is mm -hmm. when you get below that, you're overcooling to dry. So you're using two thirds sensible and one third latent when you may only have, you know, one third latent and no sensible. And so Nikki a minute ago said bulk water, by the way, that just means liquid water. And so David, just, you can keep going, but if you don't mind, could you interject sensible and latent? Yeah, so sensible is the heat that you can feel um, and latent is the moisture more or less in the air mm -hmm. is the simplest way to put it. Right, and so um, you were saying if there's no, that you can absolutely use an AC to pull out moisture as long as there's plenty of heat in the space. Yeah, and it, it does a great job doing it. Um, the problem is, is you cannot get below that sort of one third to two thirds ratio without introducing some sort of reheat. Um, and reheat is much more common uh, on commercial systems. And we see that a lot in DOAS systems uh, in rooftop units. Uh, what's a DOAS? Uh, uh, dedicated outdoor <laughs> air system. Sorry, I am full of acronyms. Yeah, so to get below that, we have to introduce reheat um, and reheat on the residential level. Uh, we're really stuck with electric reheat, which is very energy intensive. So to remove moisture, you're talking about running a, a large system um, and then re using a lot of energy to reheat uh, when instead you could just be using a dehumidifier, which is about four times more efficient than a system like that. Well said. So we're going to come back to how dehumidifiers work in a, in a moment here. Um, I loved what you said, Nikki, about how when you use a central system, you don't really know the surface temperatures all around the building, all around the home. And what that means is you don't really know the relative humidity. Um, and so I'm just gonna cover this myself just briefly. The, the relative humidity is the humidity in the air relative to the temperature of the air or the surface, which is really you know, what we're talking about when we talk about health and indoor environments. It's a euphemism for the mold word, the M word. And actually it's a euphemism for the whole indoor microbiome, the, the other M word. And what we want is a, a healthy microbiome for people to be in and, and we get too much mold and too much bacteria and it's not healthy. So what's happening there is the mold is living on a surface and it's living on the moisture on the surface. So check this, like if I have a, a, a home that's at 75 degrees and 50% RH, that's the air. And then somewhere in the building, there's a air conditioner blowing across a wall and it's, now that surface is not at 75 degrees, it's at 50 degrees. Well, the relative humidity is very high. That means the moisture is very high as well. That means that 
living beings that like moisture are going, all right, uh, this is a buffet here. I'm ready to live at this surface and at this surface RH. So there's this thing called water activity and it's A sub W. And it is really what like mold people look at. They say at this surface, what is the water available to promote? And either way I think of it as biological activity. So it's, the, and so you wanna keep that lower than a pretty high number like 0 0.7, 0 0.8, but then you wanna have a buffer margin and then you wanna have this recognition that there's variations in surface temperatures around the home and all that backs up to get you to, you really wanna keep the indoor humidity in this range of 30 to 60%. And you see it differently, sometimes 40 to 60. As you said, Nikki, sometimes with COVID people are saying up to 70, but generally speaking, this 40 to 60, and you mentioned 50% is where ASHRAE is, ACA is, 55% is where I recommend, is where you, rec I think all of us would recommend. And the, just a quick point there is Armin Rudd did some energy studies that showed that each time you come down about 5% on the RH target, you use a lot more energy. Um, I do know that Florida, you know, Florida Solar Energy has uh, their recommendation um, that each degree lower you set the temperature on your AC, uh, or te the temperature, your AC use goes up by 12%. So each degree lower you set the temperature, AC use goes up by 12%. And that's from Florida Solar Energy. That's so that's why they really recommend trying to keep it at 78 degrees. Right. And then you could be very comfortable at 78 degrees if the air is nice and dry. So now we're going to talk about uh, some of the basics of how dehumidifiers work. And uh, one of the core components of any cooling system that, that uses a vapor compression cycle is a compressor. So I'd like to get to this understanding, David, on how the compressor relates to dehumidification. So try to unpack that and good luck. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Christoph. Uh, this is a nice softball here. Um, so the compressor is used in, uh, like you said, vapor compression system. It is the compression part of the system. Um, and basically what the vapor compression system is doing um, with the compressor being the mechanical means is it is transferring heat from one, one place to another um, through the refrigerant. And so, you know, in an in, in air conditioner, it is taking heat from the inside and moving it outside to the outdoor unit. Um, and the difference between sort of that vapor compression system where you're using ambient air to cool the condenser is with a dehumidifier, we have our evaporator. And then, so the, the coil that's removing the energy. The part uh, that gets cold. The part that gets cold. So mm -hmm. air leaving that is, you know, 50, 55 degrees um, is directly hitting our condenser. Um, whereas we're not using ambient air to cool it, we're using air right off the evaporator. So our refrigeration system is actually slightly more efficient because, because of that. Okay, good. So let's try to take like the, the train of the air. So the air starts in the house and Nikki's in there cooking and you know boiling water for spaghetti. The air is getting humid. That air gets pulled in using the dehumidifier fan and it goes across the coil and it gets cold and dry. Where does it go from there? 
Well, I, I just want to point out one uh, application thing that you just said is we do not want to be pulling airs from kitchen. That's a good point. Because we do not want to have grease all over our coils, which the are due to The kitchen humidity infiltrates yeah. the whole home. Yeah. Way right. into there where the yep. return is. Yeah, you should be using a kitchen exhaust hood to take all of that out. Um, in, in terms of indoor humidity that may occur that you want to reduce because of infiltration or because of activity or whatever it may be, um, yeah, so air comes into the dehumidifier, it goes across the evaporator where it takes out both sensible and latent uh, energy. So, you know, it takes the air, it dries it, and it reduces its temperature. And then it goes across the condenser where the heat, heat is reintroduced. So we're reintroducing sensible. Got it. Okay, let's put some numbers to it because I know when I was listening to podcasts or reading, I was always like, what are these numbers? So let's say the air in the room was at 75 degrees and 50% RH. It enters your DHU far from the kitchen without grease in it. What does it leave the coil at roughly? And really, you can use ballpark. So it leaves the evaporator at about, uh, about probably 55, 100%. I mean, it'll be slightly lower than 100%. So it'll probably be like 55, 95%. Mm -hmm. um and then so it's there and that's post ac coil that would yeah. be the exact same and then you know as we add back in the heat not the mechanical heat so 3.4 right. about 3.4 3.5 watts uh or btus per watt and then a thousand btus per pint of water removed which is the heat of condensation uh it brings us up to about a, a hundred degrees sorry i'm trying to look at a a psych chart here about uh, probably about 100 degrees around 20 percent rh so so it enters the space pretty warm but also very dry and then it mixes it equilibrates into the space and that's the control that's how it gets your house quote unquote to 55 percent it's ahead, not Nikki. coming out of the coil out of the the supply registers at 100 degrees mm -hmm. it's mixing in the supply plenum in order to be tempered and then it is you know distributed with that air throughout the rest of the house and i think nick i mean what nikki's talking about is a a application that we commonly suggest for whole home dehumidifiers where you are using the supply plenum as a as a mixing chamber more or less so you're not directly delivering that heat in some instances you know that's not as much needed yeah um, you know crawl spaces or basements that have dehumidifiers. Um, you know, there's a lot of cool surfaces down there that will suck up that heat right away. So you're actually not gonna be heating up uh, the space as much um, when occupants won't really know uh, that the dehumidifier, unless it's directly blowing on them, is blowing out warm air. So I wanna keep the nerd out going a little bit because you mentioned that, right, basically you, air comes in from the house, it gets cold and dry, then it needs to absorb the heat that was needed to make it cold and dry. So it has that. So that heat, that heat that gets added back in, you said it comes from two places. And one of them I, I got was pretty easy. It was coming from the fact that this compressor is plugged in. It's pulling electrical energy in. That's a certain number of watts, which is joules per second. So watts is a rate of energy moving. And then that gets converted to a certain number of BTUs per hour of heat there. So you're at, over time, you're adding a certain number of BTUs. Just from running the compressor, you need that energy to be absorbed by this cold air. And then you mentioned the other one, the 1,000 BTUs per pint. Yeah, about 1,000 BTUs. It's a good way to estimate 
for pint of water removed, which is the heated condensation. So as we change phase from gas to liquid, uh, that requires or that lets off heat. Very well, very well put. So that's very simple too. What's interesting is we've got when we got a dehumidifier operating based on a vapor compression cycle, the vapor compression cycle itself is this elegant thermodynamics that's based on phase change, the refrigerant changing phase between liquid and gas, liquid and vapor, liquid and gas. And then the, ref the condensation is occurring by changing the phase of the water that's in the air. So it's like a double, a two level phase change uh, system. That's probably what it would be at the universities if they published papers on it. We mentioned that uh, you can make your air dry with a dehumidifier. Um, and we mentioned we, we like this kind of Goldilocks range of around 55% and at the 40 to 60. What happens if we make air too dry? I mean, is that, well, actually, that's not even go there. How dry can you get, generally speaking, with a whole house dehumidifier? Like operating full time, sized appropriately. Yeah, so it really depends on the, you know, how cold the coil is. So basically you can get down to what the dew point is of the coil. Which is, um, so, which is probably around, you know, most, most of our dehumidifiers run around a 45 degree coil. Mm -hmm. and Between the a 40 and 50 degree The refrigerant itself on the other side, the inside of the coil is a little bit colder than that. Right, exactly. And, and I mean, across a coil, the distribution's not perfect either. So right. um, there's spots that are colder and there's spots that are warmer. So yeah, I mean, so for refrigerant dehumidifiers, if you want to have below a 45 degree dew point in your house, a refrigerant dehumidifier would not probably be a good pick for you. You would want to go to a desiccant dehumidifier, which is able to get really to really low dew points uh, through a different process. How low do you think? So could a, could a, one of yours, the ultra airs, could those go to 45% RH at normal temperature, 75 yeah. degrees? It, it could get to 45. I, I would, my guess is, I mean, I'm trying to look at my psych chart here. We could probably get down to a, uh, my guess is we could probably get down to a 40 as well. The dew point, when you're at 75 degrees and 45% relative humidity, the dew point's 52. Okay. Yeah. And I, I just use the handy dandy little ultra air psychometric yep. uh, app on my phone because that's about the level of, although I will say I was the Simon Says psychometric chart winner at Allison Bale's first reading class. So Yay. I, I mean, I don't shy from a, a chart, but hey, let's make it easy for everybody here. There is an app. <laughs> so, that's awesome. So Christoph, I mean, you know, we talked about the basic dehumidifier. Do we want to talk about our XT platform dehumidifiers? Yeah, and, and split system as well. So the basic one, it's all in one box. Room <clears> air goes in and warm, dry air comes out. Tell me, tell me about the split system or tell me about the XT. So uh, those are units that are, they're slightly larger, but they're more efficient because they utilize a, a heat exchanger within them, a passive heat exchanger to- There's where the X comes from, exchange. Okay, there we go. Perfect. That's exactly where it comes from. Um, <clears throat> so the passive heat exchanger pre-cools the air uh, prior to it reaching the evaporator um, so the air is closer to dew point, so more of the energy from the vapor compression system can be used to remove moisture. Got it. It pre-cools so, it so that when it gets a little bit colder, it changes phase now, turns to liquid. Yeah, and this is a little bit hard to talk about. So in the show notes, I can also share this one. 
but basically the air comes in, it goes across the heat exchanger where it, uh, it is pre-cooled and then it goes across the evaporator and the pre-cooling occurs because after the evaporator, that air goes back through that heat exchanger um, and then out through the condenser. We actually have a pretty cool little video that shows that too. Oh, even better. I'm, I'm making FCs. a list of show notes things. So where does it get its cold air to be pre-cooling with? From the evaporator. Air comes in through the heat exchanger, goes across the evaporator and then back through the heat exchanger, which is where that air is pre-cooled from. Okay, good. So that's the pre-cooler. That's the XTs. Um, actually, before we leave that subject, is that somewhat unique to your brand as far as you know? It, you know, it's used by some other companies in various ways, but not in residential size dehumidifiers. Um, so we are the only people who make it make a residential dehumidifier with that heat exchanger to get us really high efficiencies. Um, and actually, we've, you know, we like that design so much that uh, we have a new design uh, that has already launched in some of our commercial ones where we're taking that passive heat exchanger and we're moving it into the refrigeration system. So we're using the refrigeration system actually to pre-cool and post heat uh, around the primary evaporator to give us the same efficiency, but shrink down into a smaller box. So, you know, passive heat exchangers take up quite a bit of room. Yeah. Um, this, the, our new refriger patented refrigeration system that we're rolling into some of our models um, is this, you know, the same efficiency, but smaller package there. I love it. Okay. So I'm going to stay with this for a second. Um, personal nerd out moment. So you're talking about the quest line. I yes. think. Um, and then you're, when you're saying in the residential, that's the ultra air line. So the ultra air still has the big passive heat exchanger. Are, is, are they going to eventually get this new refrigeration process uh potentially I, I i mean so i can say potentially i mean i think that's something that is a is a possibility um it just you know with how everything's playing out you know doe um introduced some new ratings last year um that energy star also had to play off of because doe is the base requirement for efficiency and then e, you know epa takes them and adds yeah. a little bit to them to make them energy star and one of the things that occurred in that is they, in whole home dehumidifiers, they, for some reason, and I'm guessing it's because of us, uh, chose that if your dehumidifier is over eight cubic feet uh, in terms of vol vol volume, uh, that you had to meet a higher efficiency. Oh my goodness, you mean the actual package? The actual package, which has absolutely nothing to do with energy efficiency. Right. Um, so if you do the origami differently or how you put the components together, yeah. suddenly you need a different target. Exactly. So, oh. uh, it, you know, it's sort of a, a penalization uh, to our more efficient technology. And actually, um, you know, some of those units will no longer be Energy Star, even though they're much more efficient than smaller units, just because of their the size of their the box they're in. Isn't that crazy? Is yeah. there any other, David, is there any other appliance in the home that is penalized for size? Not, I mean, not that I know of. Yeah, yeah. I didn't, I, I mean, I didn't think so, but it's always been one of those that it, it's, it's, it's very interesting that made it into the dehumidifier uh, category and, and you can have the biggest fridge there is. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's, it's interesting and it's, uh, I think it speaks a lot for 
dehumidifiers being in a larger refrigeration industry and that, you know, that somehow got slid in there. If this was, if we're talking about an AC being penalized for being bigger, I don't think that would ever occur. Um, so yeah, it's a. Oh, in fact, no, no, no. When AC, when the SEER ratings went up during the ARA funding, the outdoor units swelled significantly. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you're right. And they weren't penalized. No, it's nuts. It's not. Yeah. It, it, so what happens though, and it, it's interesting, it's, it, what it is is like, People like you two do not sit on the panels enough to make these help make these decisions. Like you're busy, you know, like developing markets in your case, Nikki, and developing products. All right. So coming back, so wrapping up the the heat ex the preheat exchanger thing with now we we got talking about this new refrigeration circuit. Does that new refrigeration system that might eventually come into the residential line, does it also give you some ability to temper the output air and hit closer to like a room temperature? Well, so you're going to have, I guess you had another coil. Yeah. 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 So remember what I said in terms of, uh, that you add back 3.4 to 3.5 BTUs per watt of energy used. Mm -hmm. So if with this pre-cooling system, uh, within the refrigeration system or with our XT units, you're using less watts. So you're adding back less heat per, uh, moisture removed. Got it. Got it. So, so by being more efficient, with. right. By being more efficient, we are, yeah, we are not adding as much heat back into the house per unit moisture removed. Got it. Okay. So let's get into the kind of what we thought were going to be the holy grail of um, dehumidifiers where you take the waste heat, the piece that needs to get hot in order to make the air cold and dry. You take that hot piece and you put it outside the building, outside. Um, that's a split system dehumidifier. Um, first of all, are those commonly available in the industry generally? Uh, split system dehumidifiers in terms of residential products are not commonly available. And, you know, in commercial even, there's some out there, but not very, you know, not similar to the design we have. And what ba basically just... So all the listeners can understand what you're talking about, because I know you're pretty familiar with them. So we have a unit called the SD12. Um, and what it does is it is it uses the same passive heat exchanger, but instead of having the condenser after the heat exchanger in the air path, so air comes in, goes through the heat exchanger, is pre-cooled, then goes over the evaporator, then goes back through the heat exchanger and out through the condenser, that condenser is now moved outside. So we're using ambient air to dissipate the heat outside or the energy outside. So instead of having warm dry air, like we talked about earlier with the standard dehumidifiers, we have cool dry air. Um, I got a question that maybe not everyone on the listener side is poised to want to know, but what does the 12 stand for? The 12 stand- I kind of think I know. Mm -hmm. What does it stand yeah. for? Yeah, it's a common thing. You know, I think if most listeners thought about it or are familiar with, uh, heating cooling systems, 12 is for 12,000 BTUs, which is what total cooling the system provides. And how does that relate to the compressor size or like the compressor horsepower? So in our systems, uh, a one horsepower compressor is about equal to one ton of cooling. Mm -hmm. So, we have this uh, 12,000 BTU an hour, roughly um, 
this, this energy, it's a rate of energy that we can exchange with the air and it's gonna cool the air and it's gonna dry the air. So it's gonna change the sensible load, that was the cooling and it's gonna change the latent, or not load, sensible dimension of the air. It's gonna change the temperature. It's also gonna change the moisture content of the air or the latent. Um, I don't think we can avoid this and I think we need to start talking about SHRs. What is an SHR and how does it relate to the SD12, the split system dehumidifier? So sensible heat ratio is a term used to talk about the total amount of cooling provided by a system. And it's talking specifically about the ratio of uh, sensible cooling to total cooling. So before when I was when before when I was talking about that a AC system is typically one third uh, one third latent, two thirds sensible. Uh, that basically means that the sensible heat ratio is 0.66 or two thirds. Okay. Um, so, so sensible so, over total. Got it. So let's see. Let's do it again. So sensible if it's if it's 60 if it's uh, two thirds over the total. So it's 0.6 over 100. Or sorry, it's 67 percent over 100. It's 0.67 SHR. Do you know where it comes from? I mean, I, I can guess, but I would imagine that the original cooling systems, it was like, well, I'm putting energy in, I want it as to cool as much as possible. So they probably wanted to say, I, how much cooling am I getting per total energy or something like that? Some funny reason, I just assume if you make a metric, you want it to get close to one when it's the best as it can be, right? So SHR, you know, it needs to be <clears throat> 0.9 something and we assume that's better, which is a nutty wrong view when it comes to homes and dehumidifiers. But so please a little bit more about SHR and the split system DU. Yeah, so, you know, we were just talking about how AC systems, the lowest sensible heat ratio you can get to before you really freeze up the coil is usually around that two thirds area. Um, so basically our split dehumidifier, because we're pre-cooling and more or less post-heating uh, after that evaporator, right. we're actually dropping the sensible heat ratio uh, to around 0.4. That's so amazing. So, so we're providing, yeah, so we're providing about, you know, about 6,800 BTUs of latent cooling and about 5,200 BTUs of sensible cooling. Got it. And those would add up to 12,000, which is the total, right? So yeah, you've taken this, this total that you can usually get to 0.67 and you've said, I want to dedicate almost all of it or more than half of it to drying instead of cooling. Exactly. Um, so the business end of a dehumidifier is actually where the coil and the air meet. And I know there's, there's a lot there of, of the spacing and the, the length and the residence time across the coil. Um, but we'll talk about, we'll save that for a, a deeper dive. I think getting into SHR now, so the standard system, like the standard cooling system that would be out there, maybe some like just a standard uh, single stage residential air conditioning system, the lowest those can go is 0.67. Do you know where VRF would, would fall on that? Is it a higher SHR? I, at my old job, I did a lot of monitoring of VRF systems and nice. they're definitely capable of getting down to that and running at, at for a sustained amount of time for a sustained amount of time. However, operationally, they're going to vary all over the board. 
because they're constantly changing fan speeds. They're con you know, the coils, the compressor's on, the compressor's off, all sorts of things. Um, so realistically, I mean, I think you're operating somewhere between that 0.65 up to probably 0.9. Um, there's some systems that are even listed higher than 0.9 sensible heat ratios in their engineering manuals. Um, but yeah, so all over the board, and it's really based on controls and, you know, if you're really efficient at cooling the space from a sensible standpoint, which is what SEER is based on, um, you typically have a higher sensible heat ratio because more of that energy is towards sensible cooling and less towards late. Because we have this conventional equipment, which is conventionally used, traditionally used, and we have VRF kind of moving in and they don't handle drying the air the same. And there's, there's other things about our homes that are, are fundamentally changed with regard to the, the need to dry the air. So Nikki, could you comment on what's changing in our homes or what has changed and is continuing to change? Sure, sure. I mean, we get this quite a bit, um, you know, from, from people who have lived in 1950s, 1960s, 1970s homes, and then they move and buy a newer home that is built to a different code and different construction and different technology than their older home. Right. And they notice that, uh, you know, their AC doesn't run as long and that, uh, you know, while, while they've been sold on being more comfortable in this home, that maybe it's not quite as comfortable from a moisture standpoint as their older home. Right. And so, you know, we know that building codes are driving us to get tighter and tighter, right? So we want to run the largest piece of equipment in our house as little as possible. Mm -hmm. and that's, that's how energy really, codes work. That's the energy code, right? I mean, and so the challenge with that is, you know, so we're tightening up these homes. We're trying to, to get them so our AC systems don't run as much. We also... The, the great part of that also is whatever infiltration there might be from the house, hopefully that's coming in through some sort of mechanical ventilation, right? Okay. So, so now we have the ability to, to hopefully temper that air a little bit. Of course we wanna filter it. Um, and so we've got mechanical ventilation, but we, we need that mechanical ventilation when we get our envelopes tight because we have a lot of uh, off-gassing going on in the homes, yeah. a lot of contaminants being generated in the home that we need to, uh, to, to be able to handle. So, you know, with this shorter running of our ACs, we, we've lost the ability to dry our homes exclusively with an AC system. So I, 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 I talk to builders quite a bit in traditionally in the past, there's been a lot of fingers pointing as someone, as soon as someone mentioned the dehumidifier, you know, oh, you're going to need a dehumidifier. Well, then somebody did something wrong if I need a dehumidifier in my house. And the reality is, if that house is being built tight, we're using mechanical ventilation, um, and we're sizing the AC equipment to industry best standards, if you need a dehumidifier in certain climate zones, you probably did everything right. Absolutely. You know, and so it, it's not, it's, it's very much changing the mentality, not only in our, with our, with our building industry, with our mechanical uh, HVAC contractors, but our engineers, our architects, it's, it, it's not an easy process to get everybody to understand how quickly, because the, the construction industry has changed so rapidly over the last 20 years 
and our HVAC equipment is also changing very rapidly, but I don't think all of our trades and all of our professionals in the industry have been able to keep up with everything. Yeah. Yeah. Homes still look the same. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Well, you know, and, and, and being able to, to utilize the tools that are now available to us to be able to really maybe size that equipment, but there's always that hedging the bet a little bit on, well, the software says this, but I don't want to get the call on July 4th when there's 20 people over at their house and the AC can't keep up. So I might just oversize it a little bit, you know, to kind of handle that. But yeah. And then, and then you can get more short cycling, right? Yeah. Oh my goodness. Yes. Yeah. You get higher and higher. Mm-hmm. Higher and higher. So we, we've got a lot of changes going on in our homes and, and, you know, I think the industry has done a really good job of educating on why a tight envelope is so important, right? We want to keep the moisture, uh, the outside out and the inside in. And so, but part of that is when we keep that humid air out of our house, we also trap all of that humid air that we as occupants generate inside that home. And it, it, it can be a substantial amount of moisture that especially now with people, yeah. you know, family members, the whole home, family's home, home yeah. for extended period of times, everybody's cleaning, everybody's cooking. Um, we've got a lot more moisture being generated at home. Plus when we bring in that mechanical outdoor or that mechanical ventilation um, air, we've got to be able to, to, to be able to remove any excess moisture that's in that air if the AC isn't running at longer periods of time yeah. to handle that. I mean, and when we size equipment, I don't think, I mean, I, I, all the time with architects, with builders that when that equipment is sized, it's sized for a peak load. So in most parts of the country, that peak load is approximately 1% of the time. Yeah, by definition. By definition, peak Mm -hmm. load. So everything outside of that is considered more partial load times or no load times. So how are you gonna handle controlling humidity to a set relative humidity level when you're not running at peak load with the AC? Yeah. And that's, you know, where we, kind of go head to head a little bit more with, you know, well, I've got a VRF, so that can handle it. But again, you still have to have that sensible load and for it to be able to remove the moisture. Yeah. Or you need to heat, you need to heat oh, it back the up. Heat. Absolutely. So there, there's a lot changing and I think it's, a, it's amazing. I, I, the last five years, the, amount of awareness and education that has led to increased sales of, I think not only for us, but all dehumidifier, whole house dehumidifier manufacturers has increased tremendously. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's taken some time. I mean, Ken Guerin invented these in the, in the mid nineties, right? Yeah. I mean, and it's taken quite a while for this technology to um, become more embraced. We've always been called on to fix a problem. You know, the DHU is like the afterthought, right? Well, now they got a problem, so now we're gonna have to put one in. We're now, we're, we're, we're included in the designs. Absolutely. Yeah. And there's more education and more homeowners are driving the, the, the install of that. It's mm-hmm. not just, we'll go ahead and put the system in. They're saying, no, listen, this is what's going on. I, you don't have to have a health issue 
in order to need a dehumidifier. You just really want a comfortable, protected, healthy home. Yeah. And it's, it simplifies things as well. I mean, you have one system that quote, listens to the air to come on and control temperature. You have another system that listens to the air to come on and control humidity or sensible and latent. So. Well, and uh, you're, like mm -hmm. you, I mean, you design systems, your, your whole team is, is, I mean, incredibly talented and design these systems to provide all of that. And then you hand over the control of that system to the homeowner. Yeah. And, and you're counting on them to run it like you designed it. Mm -hmm. And the way I run the thermostat in my house is very different than the way my husband runs the thermostat in the house. So if yeah. you're counting on the thermostat for that control, you know, that's optimistic. I, it is. I live in a 1950s house in Northern Virginia, climate zone four, uh, bought it a year and a half ago, not this past summer, but the first summer we were in here, um, I took the, um, the thermal imaging camera and put it on the ceiling in our uh, living room because I think it was almost a hundred degrees outside and the ceiling in the living room was 120 degrees. Oh my goodness. And the RH in my house was 38% and the temperature was about 76 and our AC just, just never, never stopped running. Never <laughs> stopped. You know, I mean, people are like, oh, you must have, you know, a dehumidifier. I'm like, Right now, I am, you, you know, the, yeah. the, co the cobbler's <laughs> kids, right? I mean, like, he's, he's the uh, envelope genius in Northern Virginia. We have the leakiest house yeah. <laughs> with using our AC system to, to remove moisture. So that is the project where, you know, we need to stop that infiltration um, in order to have a comfortable home. Yeah. And then when all that changes, yeah, we're, we're going to have to have a dehumidifier. Yeah. And yet, you know, before I ask why there's this resistance, um, David, maybe you could tell us like, so we, we mentioned it earlier, but um, this need to overcool to dry, right? If we, if you use a standard air conditioner and we say that's, this is my cooling system and my drying system, how do I, how do I make that work? Or how do I attempt to make that work? Uh, so how you attempt to make that work is you get a separate dehumidifier like we've been talking about. Because, um, you know, we, we've touched on this multiple times, but AC coils, when they are on, no matter, you know, I hear all the time, oh, but mine ramps down. Great. Yours ramps down, but it ramps down and that ratio might change a little, but it's still providing two thirds sensible cooling to one third latent cooling. That, that ratio doesn't change when it ramps down. It just has extended run times. Um, it, might, it might change a little. It might go from a sensible heat ratio of 0.8 down to that 0.65 that we're looking for. Um, but you know, ultimately, you're not going to get there um, with, without reheat. And you know, one way you can do the reheat is with a standard dehumidifier um, that has it built into it. Yeah. yeah, so I was going with that leading question. You didn't quite follow my breadcrumb trail, but the way I would attempt to do it is uh, I would say, well, I wanted it to be 75 degrees and 50% RH, but it's 75 degrees and 70% RH. So crap, I'm going to go all the way down to what, 72 degrees and look at the humidity. So I've overcooled in an attempt to dry. And that's the normal right. strategy. And when you cool, your relative humidity also goes up. So you're fighting it as well if you're looking for a certain relative humidity. Yeah. Yeah. And I've passed, so I have a lot of these hobo um, 
RHT loggers. Probably some of them are actually yours, Nikki. I should, well, thank you by this time. Thank you for loaning them to me for so long. Um, and so someone will say, look, I don't have that problem. I have one of these, you know, insert manufacturer's name here with the humidistat. And I'm like, really, you know, I hear you. You maybe not, you don't notice that problem. Um, or I get the installers that say, look, if there was that problem, I would hear about it. My clients would complain. And I'll pass these people that claim they don't have the problem, the RHT logger. And they're sitting there between 58 and 64% RH so much of the time, right? They don't notice it because they're actually keeping it quite cold in their house, which is increasing runtime. Um, yeah, and so I think fundamentally the issue is people think, oh, if I increase runtime, like at Nikki's 1950 house, look, it'll make it dry. So increasing runtime makes it dry. But you know, VRF, which does increase runtime, it ramps down on the amount of refrigerant it uses in order to do that. So it's ramping down on the, the amount of cooling it's doing and the amount of drying it's doing. But you know, there was a system, right? There was a, I'm gonna see the manufacturer's name in a good way. Like Daikin had a system in the US that said, oh, I got this hot gas that I'm about to send to the outdoor unit. Why don't I run it through a coil and reheat my indoor air first? It's, it's the Daikin Quaternity. So Quaternity, but our market didn't buy it that I know of. It can, it's not available anymore. I can imagine yeah. the Daikin engineers like, oh, like pearls before swine or whatever it is. <laughs> right. Well, it's, it's funny, you know, it's funny you bring that up because there's also, a, I think, a lesser known one as well. That's uh, the Linux Humiditrol. Oh, right. And Humiditrol. Not, mm -hmm. Yeah. And I'm not sure it's on the market, but it was an add-on to their single speed systems. Um, so you couldn't even do it on their really high end systems from what I remember. Uh, you had to get their, you know, run of the mill one one blower speed type system that you could put it on, but it also did hot gas reheat um, and was able to get to those lower sensible heat ratios. Okay, yeah. So those humiditrols, those were those were pretty pretty nice systems, really back back then when you controlled speed by changing your blower speed tap connections. But those single stage systems, I know to many people's uh, great sadness, like Andy Osk and maybe Ken Gehring too. I don't know. They 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 are going away. They're gradually being replaced by VRF systems. So what, any comments, David, about VRF and latent capacity or controls? Yeah. So I think, um, and I, I think all the VRF manufacturers are aware of this and are more than likely working on this, but the controls are really a black box on the VRF system. So like you said, on an older system, an older single speed system, you, you know, if you wanted better latent performance, you could just Slow, slow the fan speed down. So drop it from the factory, you know, 400 to 500 CFM per ton to 350 or 300 CFM per ton um, and get better latent performance. Uh, whereas with these new VRF systems, you get what you get. Um, you get the controller on the wall and it modulates accordingly. Um, you know, there are some manufacturers that have like a high performance type setting that does favor latent performance over um, sensible performance. Um, but, you know, you can't make that change. So an HVAC contractor can't go, come out and say, oh, I can give you better latent performance from this VRS system. Here's how I'm going to do it. Um, it's really tough with their controls now. I, you know, from what I've heard and what I've seen, they are working on it. I'm not sure that anything's really hit the market yet, um, but they do have dry modes as well. Um, and a lot of people tell me that, oh yeah, we, we're just going to use the dry mode. Um, if anyone lives in a home with a VRF system, uh, my dry mode, I can't control temperature 
and I can't control anything on it. It's a button. So, you know, when I visited across seas uh, in Asia, a lot of people hang their clothes to dry inside. And I know from the dehumidifier world, uh, that is why on, you know, Amazon dehumidifiers, that's why there's a constant on button because it's for when you dry your clothes inside, you have a huge moisture load and you want that dehumidifier running constantly. And so I can only imagine, cause that's where a lot of the mini split technologies come from as well, is that that dry mode is also for drying clothes. Um, cause it gives you no temperature control. It just removes the maximum amount of moisture possible um, with that piece of equipment. If you read really small print, it says clothes. It says dry clothes mode. Yeah. I'm surprised on the remote that, you know, the different <laughs> remotes that have all the weird pictures or the diagrams that have all the weird pictures. There's not like a, you know, a dryer emblem on some of them. So I had dinner with one of the Japanese uh, engineers um, not too many years back and asked him, a, obviously dry mode's a, like a enigmatic situation to me. I have yet to figure it out. And I'm asking him and he says, oh no, dry mode is for commercial buildings to gradually dry them overnight when they're not occupied. That's what dry mode is for. Which would be from like mop down from like, you know, wet water. So I'm along the same lines. Exactly, yeah, so it's dry clothes mode. So, but you mentioned something I think is really important because it wasn't, it was, you are able to take a conventional system, reduce the fan speed tap and increase latent performance. But then as Nikki just pointed out, the runtime reduction has outweighed that gain. So you increased latent performance, but the machine is off. So it has zero latent control, right? It is not running because there is no sensible or heat load to, to make it run. What's Please. interesting about David's house, um, Christoph, when we presented, you and Kimberly Llewellyn and Robert Bean and I presented at ASHRAE yeah, uh, conference a couple years ago, and I used a chart that was showing uh, the a, a BRF. Uh, system and that was David's house and one of the charts actually showed that the sensible heat ratio was like 1.52 on the system and that was because of the amount of re-evaporation on the coils due to the short cycling that was actually happening in, in the, that was David's house. Awesome that is so incredible to hear one point <laughs> You said 1.5 or 1.05? 1.52, I think. Holy yeah. So, so, and I mean, that's sort of instantaneous operational yeah. sensible heat ratio. And that's because on a lot of these yeah. VRF systems, uh, the fan continuously runs as part of the control algorithm. And so when you stop the compressor, there's still water on the coil. It goes above dew point. And so then that air then re-evaporates into the space. Got it. Or that water re-evaporates, sorry. Got it. I mean, generally speaking, I, I am in favor. I like the constant coil running. It keeps constantly mixing, constantly filtering. Um, but yeah, I, I get it. So, you know, we're going to, we're going to leave this subject y'all and guys listening. So just if someone tells you that VRF has obviated the need for a dedicated dehumidifier, you know, ask them to, to show you the, the facts on that. Um, sounds like a sales oriented opinion. And and all, all, I just want to add one more thing to this, because this is from my previous work, and this is sort of how I really got into uh, knowing there's a huge need for dehumidification and why I ended up coming to the Thermostore is that, you know, a lot of these high performance homes, they're things that we haven't built before. They're systems we haven't built before. Yeah, Energy code has changed so much in the last 10 years, um, and building product manufacturers have released 
8 million different products now to make our houses tighter, um, you know, and do all it's sorts of crazy million, stuff. David. Yeah, sorry. Uh, and so we're experimenting with this stuff that we've never done before. We're putting combinations together we've never done before. And people, you know, look to the group of high performance builders for things they can take to different markets. And we can't always do that because of the different climate zones we're in and the different impacts that may have and the different materials we're putting together. Um, and a very long story to get to where I'm going, but a lot of these builders are not privy to having people monitor their houses. Or if you built yourself a beautiful passive house, you're like, oh yeah, it works perfectly. I don't want to tell anyone it doesn't, it does not. So when I was trying to monitor passive houses and get in, because I was curious about the moisture issue, very a lot of people told me it worked. And if they allowed me to monitor, it definitely didn't work and it opened their eyes to things. And since we've been able to fix a lot of those that we were able to monitor, it's like, they're living in a different home now because, you know, they're not dealing with the, uh, you know, lack of air mixing that's going on in their bedroom at night when they close the door and maybe just have an ERV running into that space. Um, you know, now with additional dehumidification or air mixing or whatever we did to fix that, you know, they're sleeping at night and they're not sticking to their sheets in the summer. So, I mean, and I've dealt with that on my personal house is that like, you're so prideful in what you did, um, and what you built and you spend a lot of money on it that you don't want to share those bad things that occurred. Um, but as an industry, we need to start sharing them. We need to start measuring stuff. Sensors are super cheap and we need to figure out the combinations that work for the certain climate zones and repeat them. And if you try something new, you need to monitor it to make sure it works. I I wanted I want to ask us like why um, why the mainstream AC manufacturers won't um, concede this fact, but Ken Garing actually answered it in that interview where he said that a given manufacturer I think he might have said in there basically said well look we can't admit it's a problem for our brand until all the adjacent manufacturers so. What we need to solve this is like a simultaneous, you know, press release from Carrier, American Standard, Bryant, Green, Train, you know, Train. We're not going to get that. I, I, they've they've all kind of brought on dehumidifiers because isn't that ironic? Yeah, they or they. Mm -hmm. But they're not. They will always uh, push, and I hate to say that word push, but they will always provide. Uh, I think incentives to their contractors for the multi-stage equipment, the VRF, you know, th that, because it's also not easy to sell multiple pieces of equipment to homeowners um, and educate them on it, right? Mm -hmm. But we've noticed, we know if you keep it simple and you keep them separated, it often works better and homeowners understand it even more. So yeah, again, I want to thank you guys both so much. It's been such a pleasure. And um, I will uh, humbly ask, reserve the uh, request for the future to bring you back on. And there's still so much more that we haven't covered. Um, but this is a good place to stop for today. And I would just like to say, see if there's any final, final thoughts. So I have one. Uh, if someone tells you they don't need to dehumidifier and they live in a green grass climate, you should probably look for the data to actually sub substantiate their claim and you know it's not every home not every home needs one 
But if you want to maintain 50% RH throughout the entirety of the year, chances are if you live in a green grass climate, a dehumidifier is in your future. Yeah, yeah. Well said, David. Thank you. Nikki, any final thoughts? I would say that, you know, when we look at our heating and cooling systems to condition the air in our homes, it, it, these are people living in these homes and they <laughs> have comfort uh, requirements and health requirements. And there's a certain expectation of what that is. And more and more, we don't live with, oh, well, I'm, I'm comfortable most of the time in our, my house or, you know, I'm healthy most of the time. People don't allow that anymore. They right. want it all the time. <laughs> so, you know, besides heating and cooling, we need to really be thinking about that ventilation, that filtration and possibly humidification certain times of the year, but really dehumidification as well, because dehumidification goes way beyond indoor air quality. It also is that protection of that home and potentially liability uh, for the builder, architect, contractor as well. Yeah, well said. Yeah, it's interesting. There's just so many good reasons to do this relatively simple, affordable thing. And yet it's still considered, oh, that's pretty out there. So Nikki, David, thank you guys so much. And thank you all for listening. We'll talk to you next time.